Good morning and welcome to Subject ACT. I'm Nathan Goobler. Freedom of speech and freedom of religion have been two passionately invoked human rights in the last few weeks. And uh, despite the ACT recognising these and other human rights in the Human Rights Act of 2004, um, not so many Australians know that we don't actually have a bill or charter of rights which recognises and protects human rights. So what's going on here? In order to uh, talk about the issue of a bill or charter of rights for Australia, I sat down with Tim Vines, Vice President of Civil Liberties Australia, and Sam Tierney, Board Member of the CLA and an ACT Solicitor. Tim and Sam, welcome to Subject ACT. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Yeah. Uh, I guess the first thing to say is despite um, some politicians and even uh, most the majority of Australians uh, invoking freedom of speech, freedom of religion, et cetera, et cetera, uh, we're the only Western democracy to not have a bill or charter of rights to protect those things. So uh, can we just talk a little bit first about what a bill or charter of rights would actually do. Sure. So uh, there are a number of options for how you can protect human rights um, under law. Uh, probably the most famous example is the Bill of Rights in the United States. Uh, and Which what I think most Australians think that apply to apply us. Apply to them. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, people want to invoke the Fifth and they're talking yeah. about the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and what that type of uh, constitutional protection means is that um, courts can strike down, they can overrule laws that are passed by the Congress or a parliament mm -hmm. uh, because they breach a constitutional uh, right. Yep. Yep. Uh, a charter of rights is a different type of option and it's what we've seen in the United Kingdom and New Zealand, for example. Uh, and what that is, is it's a, an ordinary act of parliament which sets out human rights and generally, it doesn't give the courts the ability to strike down a law that's passed later that infringes on those rights. Uh, rather, what it does is it sets up what's called a dialogue model, mm -hmm. which means that if someone brings an action under the, under the law, under the Human Rights Charter, um, a judge can say, OK, you're right. This particular law, say it's a, uh, a terrorism law, say it's just an ordinary crime, um, it infringes uh, one of the rights protected under the Charter. I can't strike down that law, but I'm going to notify uh, the parliament that a law that they have passed breaches human rights. Mm -hmm. And then the parliament has to take some sort of action mm -hmm. or a minister has to take action. Now, mm -hmm. what we've seen is with those charters that parliament generally doesn't end up changing the law to make it human rights compliant. But the dialogue model is supposed to cause a bit of embarrassment and hopefully lead to change. So here's a question I have for you about that, is that we already have the Australian Human Rights Commission and we've seen the past five years, the dialogue that's come from that has been very, uh, you know, lively. Um, so what would the difference be in that case? To have a national uh, charter of rights would... Uh, it would elevate the prominence of human rights uh, for parliament. It would mean that individuals in Australia could say, you know, here's a, here's a specific law that protects my right to, say, free speech. Here's a particular law that re respects my right to liberty. Um, and, and that itself can have quite a benefit for the population. But what it also... So a symbolic importance. It, it can have a symbolic yeah, yeah, importance. Yeah. From a practical perspective, though, um, even though a charter doesn't allow a judge to strike down a law, it often gives the judge um, some wiggle room and they can interpret 
usually they can interpret um, other laws to make them human rights compliant. So if, if there are two interpretations of a law and a judge is deciding which one, having a Human Rights Act will often mean that they will feel more comfortable saying, we're going to take a human rights interpretation. They're mm. not making law, they're mm. not striking it down, but they're interpreting it in a way that makes it more human rights compliant. And of course, there's finally one other option, which is that even though Parliament isn't restricted in the laws it can pass, if it's passed a Human Rights Act, sometimes that means that the bureaucracy, the police, uh, you know, the, the hospitals that you might go to, um, they're bound by the law, they're bound by a Human Rights Act. And if they are acting inconsistently with it, you might be able to go to court and force them to change what they're doing. So it does have some practical benefits. 61% of Australians think that we do already have these mm. rights enshrined in some way. Uh, what accounts for that? Is it, you know, just too much TV or what, what's going on there? Look, I, I certainly think that um, people look to the media and, and, and popular media, so, you know, TV shows, and they grow up with police procedurals where rights are being invoked and, and named. Um, and you're absolutely right. When Victoria introduced or did their consultation to introduce a Bill of Rights or a Charter of Rights down there, uh, people would say to the, the panel leading the consultation, they say, oh, well, yeah, sure, Victoria could have one, that'd be nice, but why do we need a second one in Australia? Yeah, right. Uh, thinking that it was already protected at a, at, a, at a federal level. And part of the reason, I think, as well is, um, you know, Australia didn't become an independent nation in the way that America did with, you know, a you know, bloody War struggle and, against yeah. tyranny. Um, and all of the patriotism and, and fr you know, sense of freedom that went with that. Ours was a procedural, you know, separation from the United Kingdom. And a lot of would say it's still happening. And that's right. It's still a process that's Abs going absolutely. on. Absolutely. Yeah. And our constitution, to reflect that, is also a largely procedural document. There's no, in, there's not really any inspiring rhetoric in it. There are no lofty ideals. Mm. Um, and so people don't read it. And if they did, if they went and looked at it, I think people would be really surprised to find that there is virtually no human rights that are protected under it. I think some politicians would be surprised about some other things that are in the Constitution. I think so yeah. too. They should take note of Section 44 especially. <laughs> um, that's, that, that'll have to be for another episode, I think. But um, So uh, there were a few bills uh, introduced in the 70s and 80s, um, I think from the left uh, side of politics that uh, failed... But there was also a, a consultation period not long after Kevin Rudd was elected mm. that's successful and very popular, but then at the end the results were struck down. Can you talk a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, so you're right. Um, the history in Australia of human rights protection is pretty pretty disappointing, really. Mm. Uh, there have been efforts in the past to enshrine certain rights in the Constitution uh, through referendum, and for a variety of reasons, those haven't been successful. I don't think that they've been unsuccessful because Australians don't want to have their rights protected in constitutions, but your referendum are very hard to get up in Australia. And the consultation that you refer to, you're right, um, it was Labor Party policy to introduce a National Charter of Rights. And when Kevin Rudd came in, he started a lengthy consultation on it that um, I think it was Father Frank Brennan led. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, it recommended that Parliament introduce a Charter of Human Rights, like the UK and New Zealand model. And it's very disappointing, and Civil Liberties Australia found it very disappointing, that despite that recommendation, despite the goodwill that was there, um, the Labor Party sort of squibbed it. And, mm. you know, it's now sort of dropped off the agenda 
for um for everyone. What I think they Professor did in- George Williams said that it was um the like the biggest turnout. Uh, in terms of like any political process, it was the most popular yeah. of all in Australian history. Right. Well, yeah. he'd certainly know because he led the Victorian consultation yeah. Yeah. into their their charter. Um, what did happen though, as a re- result though, was was that a, a an act was introduced, and it was called the Human Rights Parliamentary Scrutiny Act. And what that law means is that any time a bill is introduced into federal parliament, it has to be accompanied by a what's called a, a statement of compatibility. So the government has to put together a statement saying what rights does this bill engage with? So does it engage with the right to privacy, the right to free speech, and then whether it limits and whether those limitations are acceptable. And it also established a permanent committee of parliament that reviews and can go back to government ministers asking for more information. Um, which sounds all very good, but I think what we've seen is that these statements of compatibility um, are really, for some people, a real tick and flick exercise. You know, we've seen all the laws that established Manus Island. We've seen all the anti-terrorism laws in, in recent years and the citizenship rules go through. And you would imagine that they engage really strongly with human rights and they breach a number of human rights mm, and limit mm, them. Mm. Um, but having a look at the statements of compatibility Every, every minister always says that this bill is compatible with human rights. Right. Um, and you sort of want these statements perhaps to be a little bit more honest and say, actually, you know what, this bill is not compatible with human rights, but here are some reasons why Parliament might want to pass it anyway. Mm-hmm. That at least would be an honest, an honest um, approach. I wanted to talk about one case because I'm uh, uh, on the side, I'm a musician, and this is uh, pretty relevant in terms of... Uh, uh, freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Um, the Pauline Pantsdown case with Backdoor Man, I'm not sure if a lot of people uh, know uh, until you go and uh, dig into the facts that Pauline Hanson actually was able to get a court injunction with that. And if there was a freedom of speech, you know, uh, enshrined in some case, then this wouldn't have happened. So we've got like uh, politicians having an unusual amount of power in that case to shut mm-hmm. down satire and, and art in that case. Yeah, that's, that was certainly a very interesting um, interesting decision. And what's interesting about it, though, in a way, is that it was just it sort of it was a preliminary matter. So, you know, they Pauline Hanson went to court and got an injunction, which is an order to do or not do something. Um, and the ABC, I don't think, really contested that. So you can challenge an injunction. You could take it to court um, at, at a higher level and actually argue it on the merits. I and think it, they went to challenge it recently, but it, then they pulled back. Yeah, and, and there might be yeah. a variety of reasons. But in Australia, the yeah. High Court has sort of done some of the work for politicians. And um, in the in the 1980s, they came up with what's called the implied freedom of political communication right. under right. the Constitution. And it's, it's not as broad as a right to free speech. It's no, certainly not as broad as the First Amendment in the United States. But what it says, well, what, what the court has interpreted to mean is that um, Parliament can't pass a law that um, impermissibly burdens the freedom to exchange ideas that go to Australia's um, establishment as a, a representative democracy. So um, it's interesting now that you know Pauline Hanson obviously is a senator again, so she's uh, definitely in the political arena. It would be worth the ABC, I think, challenging that injunction mm, finally and yeah. trying to get it lifted because mm. that's exactly the type of speech really that... Um, that the implied right of freedom of political communication is designed to protect. I was looking at the um, kind of the counter arguments for having a bill or charter of rights. Uh, one uh, prominent voice at 
the time, um, you know, a few years ago was Bob Carr, the former Premier of New South Wales. And he was talking about, um, firstly, there's this undemocratic shift of powers away from uh, the parliament to the courts and also that these rights could be used by uh, quite powerful bodies such as corporations or um, churches to stop. Uh, One example he gave was um, that the church could say, you know, right to life applies to uh, fetuses and so you can't Mm. legalise abortion. Uh, Can you talk a little bit to those sort of uh, counter-arguments there? Yeah, certainly. So um, a number of people with who are opposed to charters or bills of rights raise the points that you do. And they also especially like pointing to, say, the Second Amendment that protects the US right to bear arms as an example of the problem of entrenching rights um, that might be appropriate for a particular historical context, Mm, but which later on are just no longer appropriate. and dangerous even. Exactly. I mean, the thing is, with a lot of these problems, let's talk about the church example. The church already has a lot of power. Um, They don't need a Human Rights Act to influence government policy. We just need to see the same-sex marriage plebiscite. And it should be said, didn't George Pell push back against the Human Rights Act uh, quite strongly? Right, yeah. Yeah. And it wouldn't be surprising that that was the case. But let's deal with some of the arguments. So unelected judges making decisions. Well, that's actually what judges are meant to do to make decisions. Mm. If you've got a problem with a neighbor over a fence and you want to have a, you know, you want to resolve that, you don't go to parliament to get it sorted. You don't go to the democratic chamber. You go to a court <laughs> right. who applies the law yeah. in order to resolve that problem. Um, if you've got a problem with a government department, for instance, that's refusing to give you a benefit to which you're entitled on a discriminatory basis and you have a human rights act, you would use that to go to court and they would resolve it in the same manner. So it doesn't do anything different. Um, judges are already there to make decisions and they're there to resolve cases. Mm. And all this does is it gives you a new ground um, on which to, to challenge decisions. The second one is, of course, there's a bit of hypocrisy in the undemocratic um, argument because we've seen, especially since 9-11, a lot of power being shifted away from parliament to unelected uh, bureaucrats, to ministers uh, and so on who are able to make all sorts of decisions that affect people's citizenships, right to liberty and so on. Um, So I think that that argument doesn't really hold um, a lot of of weight. The other issue that people always raise as well is that, oh, if we introduce a human rights act, it's going to be, you know, a lawyer's lawyer's feast and lawyers will love it because they'll make lots of money. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure Sam might be able to disprove me, but... From what I've heard, most people don't make a lot of money by running human rights cases. Your clients are generally not very wealthy. Um, And the other thing, though, of course, is that it's a matter of justice. Uh, Just because someone's going to have to go to court and, you know, there'll be some work for lawyers doesn't really get away from the fact that an injustice has been done and that they now have a mechanism by which to address it. Um, so I think that that yeah is is an odd argument. And the final one, of course, about corporations, um, the ACT Human Rights Act and most other human rights acts that have been introduced, especially since you know the Bill of Rights in the US, only apply to natural 
humans. So they only apply to oh, people. Okay, right. And yeah. you can be quite specific yeah. that it only applies to a person and a person means someone who is a, a natural human um, and doesn't include, you know, um, mm. fetuses and so on. You're listening to Subject ACT. I'm Nathan Gubler and I am in discussion with Tim Vines, Vice President of Civil Liberties Australia and Sam Tierney, Board Member of the CLA and an ACT solicitor. And we're discussing a bill or charter of rights for Australia. So, Sam, I'll bring you in here. So the ACT actually has a Human Rights Act. Um, I guess the first thing I have is what what are the limitations of that considering that there isn't a federal uh, charter of rights? Uh, the main issue in terms of the uh, ACT bringing the legislation is in is that it only applies in the ACT and uh, by extension down to the Jarvis Bay Territory, for example, and some of those smaller areas. Uh, there's a very strong argument, um, and I think Tim's touched on this already, uh, but in relation to bringing this in at a Commonwealth level. Uh, the reason for that is because all of the various states and territories um, currently are a, a hodgepodge of uh, Human Rights Acts, Bill of Rights in uh, Victoria, and then in the other states and territories we don't have uh, any statutorily enshrined rights um, mm -hmm. of that nature. So the argument for bringing it at a Commonwealth level is that it will cover the field um, uh, and it will uh, apply throughout Australia um, mm. as it should. So I'm wondering how much power the Human Rights Act has here. And I'll give you an example, uh, like the huge um, uproar over uh, same-sex marriage being legalised here uh, a few years ago um, would have, you know, in part been informed by human rights and it's been framed as a human rights issue. Uh, but the federal government, you know, uh, the next afternoon shut it down. So uh, how much power does it actually have here? Uh, look, it, it has significant power here. Um, we need to look at it in the legislative context, uh, and that is that take the uh, marriage uh, equality bill that was passed here and struck down by the High Court shortly thereafter. Um, in that case, the Commonwealth has a specific uh, bill, being the Marriage Act, which covers the entirety uh, of that field. Um, in the ACT, when that legislation was passed locally and the High Court uh, made a unanimous finding uh, that this was the case, uh, is that the Commonwealth's already dealt in entirety with that issue and any ACT attempts to undermine it um, are not permissible as a matter of law. Uh, in the human rights context, um, I think the ACT is, is probably advanced um, uh, past some of its uh, other state counterparts and territory counterparts in bringing this legislation uh, forward. Um, I say that because, uh, as Tim's touched on, we, we see um, bills of rights, um, we see charters of rights throughout uh, Western democracies, the US, the UK, uh, New Zealand, which sadly seems to regularly be ahead of us um, in enshrining yeah. these sorts of rights. Yeah. Uh, but certainly the ACT has taken a, a very good step in the right direction to mm. enshrine uh, these rights in, in legislation. Um, in the context of the ACT and how that affects uh, people in their day-to-day -day existence, um, the Human Rights Act um, infuses, uh, as Tim has said, uh, a requirement onto the government that any legislation that passes be compliant uh, with that Human Rights Act. Mm -hmm. um, Sadly, we see, a, a, in a practical sense, as Tim's touched on, a uh, somewhat lip service approach um, in some contexts. However, um, certainly uh, at the very worst, it gives parliamentarians cause to pause 
um, consider that there is uh, statutory human rights requirements that they need to think about prior to passing legislation. Mm. And ultimately, uh, for court was to find that a uh, piece of legislation was not compliant with the Human Rights Act, it would be liable to be struck down. Yeah, okay. So, and um, I remember, again, invoking George Williams here, he uh, mentioned that there were a series of recommendations uh, since the Human Rights Act has been introduced here. And uh, a lot of amendments were uh, brought about because of those things. So in that case, uh, you know, the government is, you know, more or less listening uh Am I right there? Uh, I think that's a fair characterisation, yeah. There, yeah. there, there is a slow uh, filtration, I guess, is probably the best word, um, of an understanding in parliamentarians, particularly at a Commonwealth level, that human rights are important. Uh, certainly that members of the public um, and you know Civil Liberties Australia would uh, be a, a strong voice for this. Um, members of the public wish to see their human rights being protected. Um, uh, we know, as you've said earlier, that 61% of people uh, think that they have these rights mm. um, and proceed on the day, day-to-day basis on, mm. on that understanding. So uh, it's, it's pleasing that we do see um, uh, more and more voice uh, coming out in support of these human rights. It would be good to just get a, get a practical example of how um, the Human Rights Act uh, was used in order to um, protect human rights in the ACT. Sure. Uh, well, look, I can start in the criminal context because that's probably um, something that's a little more sexy and a little more interesting. Right. Uh, we have uh, cases, for example, there's a, a case uh, by the name of Temanui, uh, which was decided by Justice Ref Shorgi a number of years ago now. Uh, it was uh, a case involving a gentleman who'd been given uh, a move-on uh, direction um, in Kingston, yep. and uh, that move on direction is a statutory power that's enforced um, or it's enshrined and given to police officers to effectively tell people to leave a certain area. Yeah. Um, in that case, um, Justice Ref Shorgi ended up throwing out the move on direction um, charge on the basis that the Human Rights Act um, enshrines a right to freedom of movement. Okay. And uh, the particular circumstances of the direction given were effectively to leave an entire suburb uh, right, and okay. the judge said well that that can't be right as a matter of human rights that you are required to leave an entire area of the act so we're not talking about like yeah people just disobeying the police saying oh my freedom of whatever like you know it's within reasons and so yeah of course yeah, and yeah. Uh, he was very careful in that judgment to say that if it's properly um, set i.e you must leave a certain establishment or you must leave a certain area civic nightclub um, precinct for example is a mm. frequent one we see uh, then of course that's within the scope of um, what would be permissible under the human rights act um, in the civil context uh, there's been a number of cases uh, run under particularly section 18 which is the uh, statutory right to not be wrongfully imprisoned um, now, the main uh, way we see those things happening, and there's a recent case that was delivered by uh, Justice Mossop uh, for a young Aboriginal man um, who, uh, due to a court error um, in recording the bail conditions, um, spent about three days in custody. Um, and ultimately, the judge found that that was a breach um, of the Human Rights Act, and mm. he was entitled to be compensated for that time that he spent in police custody when he shouldn't have been. Um, Obviously, to, that like if that was federal, like that'd be huge, like because those sorts of problems are happening all over the country at the moment. 
Certainly, and yeah. um, it's it is a very complex area of of law, the wrongful imprisonment field. Right, um, right. but. Uh, certainly the Human Rights Act here has um, uh, created a, a much um, a safer regime, if you like, because uh, it enshrines the right not to have that happen mm. um, to you. Uh, to touch on something that you uh, referred to earlier in relation to uh, you know, why this would be a lawyer's picnic and such, um, in that particular case, uh, the gentleman was ultimately awarded about $2,500 and um, certainly there was a, a very small award of legal costs for right. running that case, which uh, <laughs> given the complexities and the time it took to run, um, the legal bill was certainly in excess of what was awarded. So uh, from that point of view, um, I think the suggestion that these things become lawyers' picnics washes away, mm, mm. Um, it really is more... Uh, about protection of the public mm. um, as the primary concern. So before we wrap up, um, I have a question in terms of the rhetoric of freedom of speech because that's been quite big in the last few years um, because that, that seems to be coming from the right wing of politics and we've even seen a lot of defence on the far right of quote-unquote freedom of speech what, what's going on with the language of human rights i guess is my question yeah free speech is always uh one of the <clears throat> i mean it's the one that it's a right that everyone always goes to and it's also sometimes the most controversial especially when we see it in the context of extreme speech mm. um, and hate speech uh, it's interesting as well when it comes to freedom of speech the people who on usually yeah on the the right of politics um the people who speak loudest about it actually already are the most powerful people in the community. They mm -hmm. have their own media shows. They can speak in Parliament, which ironically has a legal protection of anything said in Parliament. So you have freedom of speech in Parliament enshrined under law, but the rest of the community doesn't. Mm. Um, or they're large corporations or rich individuals who can bring defamation proceedings against other people. So the people who speak about and claim this right... Um, most loudly from the right are generally very powerful and protected anyway. And they probably wouldn't back a charter of rights. No, they wouldn't. They're also the same people yeah. who say that it's a lawyer's feast or that um, uh, it undermines what's called the supremacy of parliament, that parliament should be the supreme body and we shouldn't be giving that power to judges, um, which isn't a very strong argument in my opinion. But when it comes to free speech in Australia, yeah, people go about their day-to-day -day lives under the misunderstanding that they have that right protected. Mm, it's mm. very the, the protection is very limited um, under that implied right of freedom of political communication. Um, and I think it is time that people sort of took notice and said, well, hang on a moment, you know, we need to have these rights protected. Uh, and it applies to everyone because, you know, one day it may be the speech of, um, you know, some arch conservatives or religious groups that want to, you know, that want to protest about uh, abortion reform. Mm. On the other hand, the next day it could be protesting workers and union members who want to engage in some speech around business practices. So from our position, and certainly Civil Liberties Australia has taken the view that, um, you know, Protection of free speech needs to be for everyone. The exceptions to it um, need to be well thought out mm, and proportionate. Mm. Um, obviously, and even in the, the United States with their First Amendment, that right hasn't been extended to speech that incites violence um, or even that really incites hatred. Well, they have a hate speech it. clause, don't they? 
it they don't have there's certainly not a clause in the constitution about okay, it. Okay, right. Yeah. Um, and uh, laws that have been passed at at local level, so state level, and by federal um, Congress have been struck down or limited where they where they do try and ban hate speech. It's really about what your speech is trying to do. So if you're up on a soapbox, you know, um, in Garima Place, spouting off against the government then that should be probably protected. But if you're there and you're trying to rally a mob to go and torch the place mm. or go and, you know, lynch some uh, minority members of parliament, then obviously that type of speech takes you into a different domain. And that's the type mm. of speech that no one um, would apply that those um, the freedom of speech to. Mm. Um, so in order to uh, start rallying behind this issue, uh, what, what can listeners uh, do? It's about getting those members of parliament to start getting the senior government officials to listen. Because unfortunately, the people, when you introduce a charter of rights, the, the people who lose are actually the government because mm. it strips away some yeah. of their power, yeah. it strips away some of their freedom. And the way that our parliament is established, it's the government that controls the legislate, legislative agenda. It's the government that controls what bills will ultimately become law because they control the numbers in the lower house. So people should be writing to their local members of parliament and, say, and saying, get in touch with your ministers. You know, you've got to be taking this up in the party room. It's something that matters deeply to us. I've been speaking with Tim Vines, Vice President of Civil Liberties Australia, and Sam Tierney, board member of the CLA and an ACT solicitor. Tim and Sam, thanks so much for speaking to us on Subject ACT. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. That's all we have time for today on Subject ACT. If you'd like to listen back to this episode, it will be available soon on SoundCloud or on the iTunes store. You can also find us on Facebook. Just type in Subject ACT. Have a great morning.